Fatima Device, her mother, who was not a great student of religious matters, happened to read the word one day and thought it was a lovely name for a girl. Was eight and a half years old and she was reading the book under the bedclothes with a torch. Other children learned to read on basic primers with colored pictures of apples, balls, cockroaches and so forth. Not the device family. Anathema had learned to read from the book. It didn't have any apples and balls in it. It did have a rather good 18th century woodcut of Agnes Nutter being burnt at the stake and looking rather cheerful about it. The first word she could recognize was nice. Very few people at the age of eight and a half know that nice also means scrupulously exact, but anathema was one of them. The second word was accurate. The first sentence she had ever read out loud was, I tell you a thief that I charge air with my words. Four shall air write and four shall alpha write and three shall write the sky as tweets and one shall write in flames and there shall be not stopping them. Not fish, nor rain, nor road, neither devil, nor angel, and ye shall be there our foe, Anathema. Anathema liked to read about herself. There were books with caring parents who read the right Sunday papers, could purchase with their children's names printed in as the heroine or hero. This was meant to interest the child in the book. In Anathema's case, it wasn't only her in the book and it had been spot on for so far but her parents and her grandparents and everyone back to the 17th century. She was too young and too self-centered at this point to attach any importance to the fact that there was no mention made of her children or indeed any events in her future further away than 11 years time. When you're eight and a half, 11 years is a lifetime. And of course, if you believe the book, it would be. She was a bright child with a pale face and black eyes and hair. As a rule, she tended to make people feel uncomfortable, a family trait she had inherited along with being more psychic than was good for her from her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. She was precocious and self-possessed. The only thing about Anathema her teachers ever had the nerve to upgrade her for was her spelling, which was not so much appalling as 300 years too late. The nuns took baby A and swapped it with baby B under the noses of the attache's wife and the secret service men by the cunning expedient of wheeling one baby away to be raped. Love got to do that, it's the law, and wheeling another baby back a little later. The cultural attached himself. Thaddeus J. Dowling had been 
called back to Washington in a hurry a few days earlier, but he had been on the phone to Mrs. Dowling throughout the birth experience, helping her with her breathing. It didn't help that he had been talking on the other line to his investment counselor. At one point, he'd been forced to put her on hold for 20 minutes. But that was okay. Having a baby is the single most joyous co-experience that two human beings can share and he wasn't going to miss a second of it. He'd got one of the secret service men to videotape it for him. Evil in general does not sleep and therefore doesn't see why anyone else should. But Crowley liked sleep. It was one of the pleasures of the world, especially after a heavy meal. He'd slept right through most of the 19th century, for example, not because he needed to, simply because he enjoyed it. One of the pleasures of the world. Well, he'd better start really enjoying them now while there was still time. The Bentley rolled through the night, heading east. Of course, he was all in favor of Armageddon, in general terms. If anyone had asked him why he'd been spending centuries tinkering in the affairs of mankind, he'd have said, oh, in order to bring about Armageddon and the triumph of hell. But it was one thing to work to bring it about and quite another for it to actually happen. Crowley had always known that he would be around when the world ended because he was immortal and wouldn't have any alternative. But he'd hoped it would be a long way off because he rather liked people. It was a major failing in a time. Oh, he did his best to make their short lives miserable because that was his job. But nothing he could think up was half as bad as the stuff they brought and thought up themselves. They seemed to have a talent for it. It was built into the design somehow. They were born into a world that was against them in a thousand little ways and then devoted most of their energies to making it worse. Over the years, Crowley had found it increasingly difficult to find anything demonic to do, which showed up against the natural background of generalized nastiness. There had been times over the past millennium when he'd felt like sending a message back below saying, look, we may as well give up right now. We might as well shut down this and pandemonium at everywhere and move up here. There's nothing we can do to them and that they don't do themselves and they do things we've never even thought of, often involving electrodes. They've got what we lack. They've got imagination and electricity, of course. One of them had written it, hadn't he? Hell is empty and all the devils are here. Crowley had got a commendation for the Spanish Inquisition. He had been in Spain then, mainly hanging around cantinas in the nicer parts, and hadn't been known about it until the commendation arrived. 
He'd gone to have a look and had come back and got drunk for a week. That Hieronymus Bosch, what a weirdo. And just when you'd think they were more malignant than ever hell could be, they could occasionally show more grace than heaven ever dreamed of. Often the same individual was involved. It was this free will thing, of course. It was a bugger. Aziraphale had tried to explain it to him once. The whole point, he'd said. This was somewhere around 1020 when they'd first reached their little arrangement. The whole point was that when a human was good or bad, it was because they wanted to be. Whereas people like Crowley and of course himself were set in their ways right from the start. People couldn't become truly holy, he said, unless they also had the opportunity to be definitely wicked. Crowley had thought about this for some time and around about 1023 he had said, Hang on, that only works right if you start everyone off equal, okay? You can start someone off in a muddy shack in the middle of a war zone and expect them to do as well as someone born in a castle. Ah, Aziraphel had said. That's the good bit. The lower you start, the more opportunities you have. Crowley had said, that's lunatic. No, said Aziraphale, it's ineffable. Aziraphale, the enemy, of course. But an enemy for 6,000 years now, which made him a sort of a friend. Crowley reached down and picked up the car phone. Being a demon, of course, was supposed to mean you had no free will. But you couldn't hang around humans for very long without learning a thing or two. Mr. Young had not been too keen on Damien or Wormwood or any of Sister Mary Locatius's other suggestions which had covered half of hell and most of the golden years of Hollywood. Well, she said, finally a little hurt. I don't think there's anything wrong with Errol or Carrie. Very nice American names, both of them. I had fancied something more, well, traditional, explained Mr. Young. We've always gone in for good, simple names in our family. Sister Mary beamed. That's right. The old names are always the best, if you ask me. A decent English name, like people had in the Bible, said Mr. Young. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, he said speculatively. Sister Mary winced. Only, they've never struck me as very good Bible names, really. Mr. Young added, they sound more like cowboys and footballers. Saul's nice, said Sister Mary making the best of it. I don't want something too old-fashioned, said Mr. Young. Or Kane, very modern sound, Kane, really, Sister Mary tried. Hmm, Mr. Young looked doubtful. 
or there's always well there's always adam said sister mary that should be safe enough she thought adam said mr young it would be nice to think that the satanist nuns had the surplus baby baby b discreetly adopted that he grew up to be a normal happy laughing child active and exuberant and after that grew further to become a normal fairly contented adult and perhaps that's what happened let your mind dwell on this junior school prize for spelling his unremarkable although quite pleasant time at university his job in the payroll department of the tadfield and norton building society his lovely wife possibly you would like to imagine some children and a hobby restoring vintage motorcycles perhaps or breeding tropical fish you don't want to know what could have happened to baby b we like your version better anyway he probably wins prizes for his tropical fish in a small house in dorking surrey a light was on in a bedroom window newton pulsifier was 12 and thin and bespectacled and he should have been in bed hours ago his mother though was convinced of her child's genius and let him stay up past his bedtime to do his experiments his current experiment was changing a plug on an ancient bakelite radio his mother had given him to play with he sat at what he proudly called his worktop a battered old table covered in curls of wire batteries little light bulbs and a homemade crystal set that had never worked he hadn't managed to get the bakelite radio working yet either but then again he never seemed able to get that far three slightly crooked metal aeroplanes hung on cotton cords from his bedroom ceiling even a casual observer could have seen that they were made by someone who was both painstaking and very careful and also no good at making model aeroplanes he was hopelessly proud of all of them even the spitfire where he'd made rather a mess of the wings he pushed his glasses back up the bridge of his nose squinted down at the plug and put down the screwdriver he had high hopes for it this time he had followed all the instructions on the plug changing on page 5 of the boy's own book of practical electronics including 101 safe and educational things to do with electricity he had attached the correct color coded wires to the correct pins he checked that it was the right amperage fuse he'd screwed it all back together so far no problems he plugged it into the socket then he switched the socket on every light in the house went out newton beamed with pride he was getting better last time he'd done it had blacked out the whole of dorking and a man from the electric had come over and had a word with his mom he had a burning 
and totally unrequited passion for things electrical. They had a computer at school and half a dozen studious children stayed on after school doing things with punched cards. When the teacher in charge of the computer had finally acceded to Newton's pleas to be allowed to join them, Newton had only ever got to feed one little card into the machine. It had chewed it up and choked fatally on it. Newton was certain that the future was in computers and when the future arrived he'd be ready in the forefront of the new technology. The future had its own ideas on this. It was all in the book. Adam thought Mr. Young. He tried saying it to see how it sounded. Adam. Hmm. He stared down at the golden curls of the adversary destroyer of kings, angel of the bottomless pit, great beast that is called dragon, prince of this world, father of flies, spawn of Satan, and lord of darkness. You know, he concluded after a while, I think he actually looks like an Adam. <laughs> it had not been a dark and stormy night. The dark and stormy night occurred two days later, about four hours after both Mrs. Dowling and Mrs. Young and their respective babies had left the building. It was a particularly dark and stormy night, and just after midnight, as the storm reached its height, a bolt of lightning struck the covenant of the chattering order, setting fire to the roof of the vestry. No one was badly hurt by the fire, but it went on for hours, doing a fair amount of damage in the process. The investigator of the fire lurked on a nearby hilltop and watched the blaze. Tall, thin and duke of hell, it was the last thing that needed to be done before his return to the nether regions and he had done it. He could safely leave the rest to Crowley. Haster went home. Technically, Aziraphale was a principality, but people made jokes about that these days. On the whole, neither he nor Crowley would have been chosen each other's company, but they were both men, or at least men-shaped creatures of the world and the arrangement had worked to their advantage all this time. Besides, you grew accustomed to the only other face that had been around more or less consistently for six millennia. The arrangement was very simple, so simple in fact that it didn't really deserve the capital letter, which it had got for simply being in existence for so long. It was the sort of sensible arrangement that many isolated agents working in awkward conditions a long way from the superiors reach with their opposite number when they realize that they have more in common with their immediate opponents than their remote allies. It meant a tacit non-interference in certain of each other's activities. It made certain that while neither really won, also neither really lost, and both were 
able to demonstrate to their masters the great strides they were making against a cunning and well-informed adversary. It meant that Crowley had been allowed to develop Manchester while Aziraphale had a free hand in the whole of Shropshire. Crowley took Glasgow, Aziraphale had Edinburgh. Neither claimed any responsibility for Milton Keynes, but both reported it as a success. And then, of course, it had seemed even natural that they should, as it were, hold the fort for one another whenever common sense dictated. Both were of angel stock, after all. If one was going to hull for a quick temptation, it made sense to nip across the city and carry out a standard brief moment of divine ecstasy. It had been done anyway, and being sensible about it gave everyone more free time and cut down on expenses. Aziraphale felt the occasional pang of guilt about this, but centuries of association with humanity was having the same effect on him as it was on Crowley, except in the other direction. Besides, the authorities didn't seem to care much who did anything so long as it got done. Currently, what Aziraphale was doing was standing with Crowley by the duck pond in St. James Park. They were feeding the ducks. The ducks in St. James Park are so used to being fed bread by secret agents meeting clandestinely that they have developed their own Pavlovian reaction. Put a St. James Park duck in a laboratory cage and show it a picture of two men, one usually wearing a coat with a fur collar and the other something sober, with a scarf and it'll look up expectantly. The Russian cultural attached black beard is particularly sought after by the more discerning duck, while the head of MI9 soggy hobbies with marmite is relished by the connoisseurs. Aziraphale tossed a crust to a scruffy-looking brick, which caught it and sank immediately. The angel turned to Crowley. Really, my dear? He murmured. Sorry, said Crowley. I was forgetting myself. The duck bobbed angrily to the surface. Of course, we knew something was going on, Aziraphale said. But one somehow imagines this sort of thing happening in America. They go in for that sort of thing over there. It might get to at that, said Crowley gloomily. He gazed thoughtfully across the park to the Bentley, the back wheel of which was being industriously clamped. Oh yes, the American diplomat, said the angel. Rather showy, one feels, as if Armageddon was some sort of cinematographic show that you wish to sell in as many countries as possible. Every country, said Crowley. The earth and all the kingdoms thereof. Aziraphale tossed the last scrap of bread at the ducks, who went off to pester the Bulgarian naval attached 
and a furtive looking man in in a cambridge tie and carefully disposed of the paper bag in a waste paper bin he turned and faced crowley we'll win of course he said you don't want that said the demon why not pray listen said crowley desperately how many musicians do you think your side have got eh first grade i mean aziraphale looked taken aback well i think he began two said crowley elgar and list that's all we've got the rest beethoven brahms all the bats mozart and the lot Can you imagine eternity with Elgar? Aziraphale shut his eyes. All too easily, he groaned. That's it then, said Crowley with a gleam of triumph. He knew Aziraphale's weak spot all right. No more compact discs, no more Albert Hall, no more proms, no more Blindburn. just celestial harmonies all day long in as in a firmament like eggs without salt you said which reminds me no salt no eggs no gravlacks with dill sauce no fascinating little restaurants where you where they know you no daily telegraph crossword no small antique shops no bookshops either no interesting old editions no crowley scrapped the bottom of aziraphale's barrel of interest regency silver snuff boxes but after we win life will be better croaked the angel but it won't be as interesting look you know i'm right you'd be happy with a harp as i'd be with a pitchfork you know we don't play harps and we don't use pitchforks i was being rhetorical they stared at one another as he refused spread his elegantly manicured hands my people are more than happy for it to happen you know it's what it's all about you see the great final test flaming swords the four horsemen seas of blood the whole tedious business he shrugged and then came over insert coin said crowley sometimes i find your methods of expression a little difficult to follow i like the seas as they are it doesn't have to happen You don't have to test everything to destruction just to see if you made it right. Aziraphale shrugged again. That's ineffable wisdom for you, I'm afraid. The angel shuddered and pulled his coat around him. Grey clouds were piling up over the city. Let's go somewhere warm, he said. You're asking me? said Crowley glumly. They walked in somber silence. for a while it's not that i disagree with you said the angel as they plodded across the grass it is as that i'm not allowed to disobey you know that me too said crowley as he fell gave him a sidelong glance oh come now he said you're a demon after all yeah 
but my people are only in favor of disobedience in general terms. It's specific disobedience they come down on heavily, such as disobedience to themselves. You've got it. You'd be amazed. Or perhaps you wouldn't be. How long do you think we've got? Crowley waved a hand at the Bentley, which unlocked its doors. The prophecies differ, said Aziraphale, sliding into the passenger seat. Certainly until the end of the century, although we may expect certain phenomena before then. Most of the prophets of the past millennium were more concerned with scansion than accuracy. Crowley pointed to the ignition key. It turned. What? he said. You know, uh, said the angel helpfully. And we world unto an end shall come in tumpety 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 one or two or three or whatever. There aren't many good rhymes for six. So it's probably a good year to be in. And what sort of phenomena? Two-headed calves, signs in the sky, geese flying backwards, shards of fish, that sort of thing. The presence of the Antichrist affects the natural operation of casualty. Hmm. Crowley put the Bentley in gear. Then he remembered something. He snapped his fingers. The wheel clamps disappeared. Let's have lunch, he said. I owe you one from... When was it? Paris, 1793, said Aziraphale. Oh yes, the reign of terror. Was that one of yours or one of us? Wasn't it yours? Can't recall. It was quite a good restaurant though. As they drove past an astonished traffic warden, his notebook spontaneously combusted to Crowley's amazement. I'm pretty certain I didn't mean to do that, he said. Aziraphale blushed. That was me, he said. I had always thought that your people invented them. Did you? We thought they were yours. Crowley stared at the smoke in the rearview mirror. Come on, he said. Let's do the Ritz. Crowley had not bothered to book. In his world, table reservations were things that happened to other people. Aziraphale collected books. If he were totally honest with himself, he would have to have admitted that his bookshop was simply somewhere to store them. He was not unusual in this. In order to maintain his cover as a typical second-hand bookseller, he used every means short of actual physical violence to prevent customers from making a purchase. Unpleasant damp smells, lowering looks, erratic opening hours, he was incredibly good at it. He had been collecting for a long time, and like all collectors, he specialized. He had more than 60 books of predictions concerning developments in the last handful of centuries of the second millennium. He had a penchant for Wilt first editions. And he had a complete set of the infamous Bibles individually named from errors in typesetting. 
These Bibles included the unrighteous Bible, so called from a printer's error, which caused it to proclaim in I Corinthians, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? And the wicked Bible, printed by Barker and Lucas in 1632, in which the word not was omitted from the seventh commandment, making it thou shalt commit adultery. There were the discharge Bible, the triacle Bible, the standing fishes Bible, the charring cross Bible, and the rest. Aziraphale had them all, even the very rarest. A Bible published in 1651 by the London publishing firm of Bilton and Skaggs. It had been the first of their three great publishing disasters. The book was commonly known as the Babur Alley, this Bible. The lengthy compositor's error, if such it may be called, occurs in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 48, verse 5. And by the border of Dan, from the east side to the west side, a portion of Alhur. Three, and by the border of Alhur, from the east side even unto to the west side, a portion of Naphtali. Four, and by the border of Naphtali, from the east side unto the west side, a portion of Manafi. 5. Bagarali, this is for a lark. I am sick to my heart of thigh. Fetty. Master Bilton, if no gentleman, and Master Skaggs, no more than a f- tight-fisted Southwark knob-fick. I tell you, one a day like if anyone with half an oz of sense should have been in the sunshine and not stuck here all the lifelong day in thy mortified old by our lady workhop six and by the border of Ephraim from the east fit even unto the west fit a portion of Reuben Bilton and Skagg's second great publishing disaster occurred in 1653. By a stroke of rare good fortune, they had obtained one of the famed lost cartos and the three Shakespeare plays never reissued in folio edition and now to- totally lost to scholars and playgoers. Only their names have come down to us. This one was Shakespeare's earliest play, The Comedy of Robin Hood. or the forest of sherwood master bilton had paid almost 6 guineas for the quarto and believed he could make nearly twice that much back on the hardcover folio alone then he lost it bilton and skag's third great publishing disaster was never entirely comprehensible to either of them everywhere you looked books of prophecy were selling like crazy The English edition of Nostradamus Centuries had gone into its third printing and five Nost- 
Nostradamus's all claiming to be the only genuine one were on triumphant signing tours and mother shipton's collection of prophecies was printing out of the shops each of the great london publishers there were eight of them had at least one book of prophecy on its list every single one of the books was wildly inaccurate but their air of vague and generalized omnipotence made them immensely popular they sold in their thousands and in their tens of thousands it is a license to print money said master bilton to master skaggs the public are crying out for such rubbish we must straightway print a book of prophecy by some hack the manuscript arrived at their door the next morning the author's sense of timing as always was exact Although neither Master Bilton nor Master Skaggs realized it, the manuscript they had been sent was the sole prophetic work in all of human history to consist entirely of completely correct predictions concerning the following 340 odd years being a precise and accurate description of the events that would culminate in Armageddon. It was on the money in every single detail it was published by bilton and skaggs in september 1655 in good time for the christmas trade and it was the first book printed in england to be remaindered it didn't sell not even the copy in the tiny lancashire shop with local author on a piece of cardboard next to it the author of the book one agnes nutter was not surprised by this but then it would have taken an awful lot to surprise agnes nutter anyway she had not written it for the sales or the royalties or even for the fame she had written it for the single gratis copy of the book that an author was entitled to no one knows what happened to the legends of unsold copies of her book certainly none remain in any museums or private collections even aziraphale does not possess a copy but would go weak at the knees at the thought of actually getting his exquisitely manicured hands on one in fact only one copy of agnes nutter's prophecies remained in the entire world it was on a bookshelf about 40 miles away from where crowley and aziraphale were enjoying a rather good lunch and metaphorically it had just begun to tick and now it was 3 o'clock the antichrist had been on earth for 15 hours and one angel and one demon had been drinking solidly for three of them They sat opposite one another in the back room of Aziraphale's dingy old bookshop in Soho. Most bookshops in Soho have back rooms and most of the back rooms are filled with rare or at least very expensive books. But Aziraphale's books didn't have illustrations. They had old brown covers, crackling pages. Occasionally, if he had no alternative, he'd sell one. And occasionally, serious men in dark suits would come calling and suggest, 
very politely that perhaps he'd like to sell the shop itself so that it could be turned into the kind of retail outlet more suited to the area. Sometimes they'd offer cash in large rolls of grubby 50-pound notes. Or sometimes, while they were talking, other men in the dark glasses would wander around the shop, shaking their heads and saying how inflammable paper was and what a fire trap he had here. And Aziraphale would nod and smile and say that he'd think about it. And then they'd go away and they'd never come back. Just because you're an angel doesn't mean you have to be a fool. The table in front of the two of them was covered with bottles. The point is, said Crowley, the point is, the point is, he tried to focus on Aziraphale. The point is, he said, and tried to think of a point. The point I am trying to make, he said, writing, is the dolphins. That's my point. Kind of fish, said Aziraphale. No, 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 said Crowley, shaking a finger. Some mammal. Your actual mammal. Difference is... Crowley waded through the swamp of his mind and tried to remember the difference. Difference is they mate out of water, volunteered Aziraphale. Crowley's brow furrowed. Don't think so. Pretty sure that's not it. Something about their young. Whatever. He pulled himself together. The point is, the point is their brains. He reached for a bottle. What about their brains? Said the angel. Big brains. That's my point. Size of size of size of damn big brains and then there's the whales brain city take it from me whole damn sea full of brains kraken said aziraphale staring moodily into his glass crowley gave him the long cool look of someone who had just had a girder dropped in front of his train of thought. <sighs> Great big bugger, said Aziraphale, sleepeth beneath the thunders of the upper deep, under loads of huge and unnumbered polypol, polypo, uh, bloody great seaweeds, you know, supposed to rise to the surface right at the end when the sea boils yeah fact there you are then said crowley sitting back whole sea bubbling poor old dolphins so much seafood gumbo no one giving a damn same with gorillas whoops they say sky gone all red stars crashing to the ground what they're putting in the bananas these days and then they make mess, you know, gorillas, said the angel pouring another drink and managing to hit the glass on the third go. Nah, God's truth, sure film, mess, 
That's birds, said Crowley. Nests, insisted Aziraphale. Crowley decided not to argue the point. There you are then, he said. All creatures, great and smoke. I mean, small. Great and small. Lot of them with brains and then bzam. But you're part of it, said Aziraphale. You tempt people. You're good at it. Crowley thumped his glass on the table. That's different. They don't have to say yes. That the ineffable bit, right? Your side made it up. You've got to keep testing people, but not to destruction. All right, all right. I don't like it any more than you, but I told you. I can't decide, decide not to do what I'm told. I'm an angel. There's no theatres in heaven, said Crowley, and very few films. Don't you try to tempt me, said Aziraphale wretchedly. I know you, you old serpent. Just you think about it, said Crowley relentlessly. You know what eternity is. You know what eternity is. I mean, do you know what eternity is? There's this big mountain, see, a mile high at the end of the universe and once every thousand years, there's this little bird. What little bird? said Aziraphale suspiciously. This little bird I'm talking about and every thousand years. The same bird every thousand years? Crowley hesitated. Yeah, he said. Bloody ancient bird then. Okay, and every thousand years this bird flies, pimps, flies all the way to this mountain and sharpens its beak. Hold on, you can't do that. Between here and the end of the universe, there's a, there's loads of... The angel waved her hand expansively, if a little unsteadily. Loads of bugger all, dear boy. But it gets there anyway, Crowley put severed how it doesn't matter it could use a spaceship said the angel Crowley subsided a bit yeah he said if you like anyway this bird only it is the end of the universe we're talking about said Aziraphale so it'd have to be one of those spaceships where your descendants are the ones who get out at the other end you have to tell your descendants, you say, when you get to the mountain, you've got to... He hesitated. What have they got to do? Sharpen its beak on the mountain, said Crowley. And then it flies back in the spaceship. And after a thousand years, it goes and does it all again, said Crowley quickly. There was a moment of drunken silence. Seems a lot of effort just to sharpen a beak, mused Aziraphale. Listen, said Crowley urgently. The point is that when the bird has worn the mountain down to nothing, right then, Aziraphale opened his mouth. Crowley just knew he was going to make some point about the relative hardness of 
birds beaks and granite mountains and plunged on quickly then you still won't have finished watching the sound of music as Irafel froze and you'll enjoy it Crowley said relentlessly you really will my dear boy you won't have a choice listen heaven has no taste now and not one single sushi restaurant a look of pain crossed the angel's suddenly very serious face i can't cope with this while i'm drunk he said i'm going to sober up me too they both winced as the alcohol left their bloodstreams and sat up a bit more neatly as he fell straight in his tie i can't interfere with divine plans he croaked Crowley looked speculatively into his glass and then filled it again. What about diabolical ones, he said. Pardon? Well, it's got to be a diabolical plan, hasn't it? We are doing it, my side. Ah, but it's all part of the overall divine plan, said Aziraphale. Your side can't do anything without it being part of the ineffable divine plan. he added with a trace of smugness you wish no that's the azirafel snapped his fingers irritably the thing what you'd call it in your colorful idiom the line at the bottom the bottom line yes it's that well if you're sure said crowley no doubt about it crowley looked up slyly then You can't be certain, correct me if I'm wrong. You can't be certain that thwarting it isn't part of the divine plan too. I mean, you're supposed to thwart the wiles of the evil one at every turn, aren't you? Aziraphale hesitated. There is that. Yes. You see a while, you thwart, am I right? Broadly, broadly. Actually I encourage humans to do the actual thwarting because of the ineffability you understand right right so all you've got to do is thwart because if i know anything said crowley urgently it's that the birth is just the start it's the upbringing that's important it's the influences otherwise the child will never learn to use its powers he hesitated at least not necessarily as intended Certainly our side won't mind me thwarting you said Aziraphale thoughtfully they won't mind that at all right it would be a real feather in your wing crowley gave the angel an encouraging smile what will happen to the child if it doesn't get a satanic upbringing though said aziraphale probably nothing it'll never know but genetics don't tell me from genetics What have they got to do with it? said Crowley. Look at Satan, created as angel, grows up to be the great adversary. Hey, if you're going to go on about genetics, you might as well say the kid will grow up to be an angel. After all, his father was really big in heaven in the old days. Saying he'll grow up to be a demon just because his dad became one is like saying a mouse with its tail cut off will give birth to a tailless mice. No, upbringing is everything. Take it from me. And without unopposed satanic influences, well, at worst, hell will have 
to start all over again and the earth gets at least another 11 years that's got to be worth something hasn't it now aziraphale was looking thoughtful again you're saying the child isn't evil for itself he said slowly potentially evil potentially good too i suppose just this huge powerful potentiality waiting to be shaped said crowley he shrugged anyway why are we talking about this good and evil they're just names for sides we know that i suppose it's got to be worth a try said the angel crowley nodded encouragingly agreed said the demon holding out his hand the angel shook it cautiously it will certainly be more interesting than saints he said and it will be for the child's own good in the long run said crowley we'll be godfathers of sort overseeing his religious upbringing you might say aziraphale beamed you know i had never have thought of that he said godfathers well i'll be damned it's not too bad said crowley and you get used to it she was known as scarlet at that time she was selling arms although it was beginning to lose its savor she never stuck at one job for very long 3 400 years at the outside you didn't want to get in a rut her hair was true auburn neither ginger nor brown but a deep and burnished copper color and it fell to her waist in dresses that men would kill for and indeed often had her eyes were a startling orange she looked 25 and always had she had a dusty brick red truck full of assorted weaponry and an almost unbelievable skill of getting it across any border in the world she had been on her way to a small west african country where a minor civil war was in progress to make a delivery which would with any luck turn it into a major civil war unfortunately the truck had broken down far beyond even her ability to repair it and she was very good with machinery these days she was in the middle of a city at the time the city in question was the capital of kumbolala land an african nation which had been at peace for the last 300 years for about 30 years it was sir humphrey clarkson land but since the country had absolutely no mineral wealth and the strategic importance of a banana it was accelerated towards self government with almost unseemly haste kumbolala land was poor perhaps and undoubtedly boring but peaceful its various tribes who got along with one another quite happily had long since beaten their swords into plowshares a fight had broken out in the city square in 1952 between a drunken ox driver and an equally drunken ox thief people were still talking about it
Scarlet yawned in the heat. She fanned her head with her broad-brimmed hat, left the useless truck in the dusty street and wandered into a bar. She bought a can of beer, drained it, then grinned at the barman. I caught a truck needs repairing, she said. Anyone around I can talk to? The barman grinned white and huge expansively. He'd been impressed by the way she drank her beer. Only Nathan, miss. But Nathan has gone back to Kwanda to see his father-in-law's farm. Scarlet bought another beer. So this Nathan, any idea when he'll be back? Perhaps next week. Perhaps two weeks' time, dear lady. Oh, that Nathan. He's a scamp, no? He leaned forward. You traveling alone, miss? He said. Yes. Could be dangerous. Some funny people on the roads these days. Bad men, not local boys, he added quickly. Scarlet raised a perfect eyebrow. Despite the heat, he shivered. Thanks for the warning. Scarlet purred. Her voice sounded like something that lurks in the long grass visible only by the twitching of its ears, until something young and tender wobbles by. She tipped her hat to him and strolled outside. The hot African sun beat down on her. Her truck sat in the street with a cargo of guns and ammunition and landmines. It wasn't going anywhere. Scarlet stared at the truck. A vulture was sitting on its roof. It had travelled 300 miles with Scarlet so far. It was belching quietly. She looked around the street. A couple of women chatted on the street corner. A board market vendor sat in front of a heap of coloured gods, fanning the flies a few happily children lazily played in the dust. What the hell, she said quietly. I could do with a holiday anyway. That was Wednesday. By Friday, the city was a no-go area. By the following Tuesday, the economy of the Kumbo Lala land was shattered. 20,000 people were dead, including the barman shot by the rebels while storming the market barricades. Almost 100,000 people were injured. All of Scarlet's assorted weapons had fulfilled the function for which they had been created and the vulture had died of fatty degeneration. Scarlet was already on the last train out of the country. It was time to move on, she felt. She'd been doing arms for too damn long. She wanted a change, something with openings. She quite fancied herself as a newspaper journalist. A possibility. She fanned herself with her hat and crossed her long legs in front of her. Farther down the train, a fight broke out. Scarlet grinned. People were always fighting over her and around her. It was rather sweet, really.